My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. They had me in a room with doctors and therapists and so forth, and I'm explaining this idea. I had them all, all tied up in, in knots, and all the administrators at the hospital were all tied up in knots, rope tricks, and calling <laughs> coin tricks, and so forth. And it was quite an amazing scene, but actually, really, you know, they, they kind of got it. And they had me meet patients. We kind of tested it. We kind of tried some of these mini illusions out with some of the patients who were at the hospital. And you watched their reactions, and it was amazing. I'm Dr. Oz, and this is the Dr. Oz Podcast. Well, speaking of David Copperfield, and I thought it would be a great honor to have him on the program today, talk a little, little bit about Project Magic, uh, but also talk about magic in general and uh, historically what it's meant to people and what opportunities may afford us today as well. David, thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. Good to talk to you again. Uh, for the few people who don't know every single thing about you, let me just quickly summarize that uh, you've been hailed, I, I think appropriately, by audiences and critics alike as the greatest magician in the world. You've advanced the art to a, uh, to a new height, and you've redefined it along the way. And, you know, folks remember you getting the Statue of Liberty to, to vanish, walking through the Great Wall of China, you know, flying through the air in ways that no one could ever envision. That's all, you know, spectacular and has made you the in, in, incredible icon that, that you are. In the middle of all that, um, you took time out to start crafting programs that you thought might be helpful to, to people who had, had uh, disabling injuries. And I, I remember when we were together uh, on the island hearing the first time about this, and you subsequently showed a, a brief video, but I, I wondered if I could just capture your thoughts uh, on why you thought you might be able to help uh, this, the disabled by teaching them magic. Well, it's an amazing thing. I, uh, you, know, you always look for opportunities to use what you do uh, for a more not just noble purpose, but just to, instead of just making people happy, to actually use it to help someone in a more, more profound way. And magic helped me in many ways. It helped me with my socialization skills. It helped me uh, have a lot of confidence. But it also helped me from a standpoint of dexterity and coordination and uh, my cognitive skills, you know, the way I thought, my memory, my plan, all those things. As a kid with learning magic, it really benefited well, it benefits anybody that starts doing it. You know, you learn certain skills to present magic. Uh, I got a letter about 27 years ago from a young magician, and uh, he sent me a letter saying, uh, 
you know, to ask me for advice on magic. And I responded to him. And then a few weeks later, I got a letter from him. And he said, can you get me booked on the Carson show? <laughs> the guy had a lot of <laughs> self-confidence. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I gave him some more, more advice. And uh, he sent a picture of himself. And he was in a wheelchair. Mm. And he'd never mentioned that to me in any of his numerous correspondence before. I thought it was really amazing. And, uh, you know, this is before Google <laughs> existed. So I asked him for, you know, articles about himself. And he sent me very proudly articles himself in a local newspaper. And he was a disabled magician, a guy that, you know, was wheelchair-bound. And, uh, you know... <laughs> was thought to be very interesting in his local community. I don't want to say his name or where he's from, but um, he had that kind of distinction. And the articles, in the articles, they would ask him, you know, were people surprised when he showed up in his wheelchair? Because he would never advertise himself as having a disability. Yeah, that's and he said no. He didn't. Have, he didn't tell people that he was disabled. He would just be hired from the phone book as a magician, and he'd come in rolling in his wheelchair. They asked him, you know, well, were people surprised? And he said, well, that's their problem. You know, he really he didn't think of himself as disabled. And I thought back to my childhood, and I wasn't uh, uh, physically disabled or or mentally disabled. I don't think, but but not, you know, I, I certainly you know had skills that I learned because I was motivated because of the magic, you know, um, and magic really helped me. And I think it probably helped this guy too, because it helped from his self-esteem standpoint. He had a, a skill that an able-bodied person didn't have. So he felt uh, kind of empowered by this. And I thought, man, this is a great, great idea. You know, this is an amazing. Let me make something out of this. It, so should I keep going? Yeah, no, I, no, I, I want to hear the story, but I want to take one segment here. It's interesting to me as you tell the story. That I can just imagine a little David Copperfield, you know, wandering through life, uh, and you grew up in, in the New York area. Yeah, New Jersey, actually. Oh, New Jersey. New Jersey. But I'd hang out in New York. I'd come to New York every day. We could talk about that later. So now, when you were a young kid, when you were first exposed to magic, was it the same kind of epiphany that you think kids who are disabled might have when they first start doing magic? I'm not sure. You know, I didn't have that transition in that same way. You know, I felt, you know, like any kid, you search for something to make you special, something to be accepted, whether it's football or, you know, basketball, if you're, you know, if you're, you're good at, you know, making little model cars. I don't know what the thing is that kids find. You know, for me, magic came very, very easy for me for some reason. You know, it's one of those things that just it was a good fit when I was eight years old, you know, and I did ventriloquism and I was a lousy ventriloquist. <laughs> you know, my lips were flapping away and my material really was from the back of Boys Life magazine. So I really, really, really sucked. Can you say suck on the show? Yes, yes, yes. It was really bad. Um, and, but when I did magic, for some reason, uh, I got tons of approval and just became very easy. But I think, there was, yeah, maybe you're right. There was, the epiphany for me was something that uh, made me motivated. So I guess that's the analogy. You know, I was motivated by something because um, you know, your friends treat you maybe a little bit differently or they have something to talk about, something to share, you know, and that, that right. provided that for me. I happen to, you know, for some reason have uh, an innate kind of passion for this, you know, so I kept doing it. So it was even more so. But for, for other kids that start doing magic as a, as a kid, they find that uh, people look at them that they have something to share, you know, they have something uh, that uh, creates fascination, creates, you know, kind of a, 
a talking point to, to begin a conversation. So I guess that's the analogy for a disabled person. You know, you, you, you can feel better about yourself in a very short time, depending on the piece of magic that you're doing. Yeah, you know, I, I remember watching the video with you and seeing the looks in the kids' eyes when they saw how you looked at them after they did the magic. And so no longer are they defined as being a cripple who's not as good as you are. In fact, they're quite oppositely doing things you can't do. Right. Which is what was so striking to me about the program. That's why it's so innately appealing. So anyway, yeah. you, you've got this insight from this gentleman who's been trying to get on the Carson show through you. <laughs> and really is a, an, an, an impressive gentleman who's got this ability but able to do magic. How do you, they, you know, a lot of folks would have a great idea like that but never take it to the next step. What, what, what should you actually do to make it into Project Magic? Uh, well, you know, I took the idea. I said, man, this could really work. It wasn't his idea, but he definitely inspired it. You know what I'm saying? The fact mm-hmm. that he had success mm-hmm. being a disabled person but with a special skill. And I thought, you know, even as a, a non-medical professional, and you know that I'm not a medical professional, squeamish <laughs> about of hospitalitis, you know. Um, but, you know, I took, I said, this is really could work, you know. Uh, and as a layman, I said, well, okay. You know, I know that magic not only helps with one's self-esteem, but it could help, you know, if you learn a sleight of hand in certain ways, that could help motivate, you know, physical activity that you wouldn't be motivated to do. And, you know, mathematics and all kinds of, you know, uh, communication, all those things could be helped by um, and be motivated by magic. So I started put together with a bunch of friends of mine some ideas of simple magic that, that could teach different skills, you know. And uh, after putting that together, I went to a hospital in California called Daniel Freeman Hospital. It was called that at the time. It's changed a little bit, but... Mm-hmm. And I said, look, let's, let's have a meeting, guys. This is, you know, and I was already on TV and doing a lot of specials and stuff. So they said, okay, come, come see us. And they had some innovations in their therapy program. They, they kind of pioneered uh, uh, airplane um, wheelchair spots for airplanes and stuff like that. So they mm-hmm. were already kind of forward-thinking uh, facilities. So, and they had me in a room with doctors and therapists and so forth. And I'm explaining this idea. And they're going, hmm, this could actually work. This is pretty good. And, and uh, the occupational therapist, and Julie DeGene, who we're going to talk to in a minute, uh, kind of embraced the idea because from an occupational therapist standpoint and from a physical therapy standpoint, it really has really good applications. And I have them all, all tied up in, in knots, and all the administrators of the hospital were all tied up in knots. You know, it was very, very funny, and rope tricks and coin uh, <laughs> tricks and so forth. And it was quite an amazing scene, but actually, really, you know, they, they kind of got it, you know. And that day, uh, they took me throughout the hospital after I did my presentation, and they had me meet patients. We kind of tested it. We kind of tried some of these uh, mini illusions out with some of the patients throughout the hospital. And you watched their reactions, and it was amazing. There was a girl, a little girl named Janae, who was eight years old, had a stroke. And, you know, eight years old had a stroke. Is that possible? Mm. Well, it is possible, as you know. Yeah. But to other people, they don't really realize it, including me. So, And she didn't want, she didn't really want to do her therapy very much. She didn't want to do, you know, placing the blocks on the thing or the, you know, stacking the cones or any of the things that are in physical and occupational therapy. But when we taught her magic, she loved it, and she started doing it. We said, "Wow, we really have something here." Um, she would always, when you, when you, when the therapist told me when she was doing normal therapy, uh, she had a pro- problem with her left side, and, and she would. Uh, they leave the room, and her, she'd they'd come back in the room, and she'd be doing her normal therapy on the non-affected side. So she'd be doing the same thing <laughs> in the side that didn't need the exercise. 
but with Project Magic, she did it on the correct side, and uh, and she was doing this rubber band, uh, jumping rubber band uh, effect that we teach in the very beginning in Project Magic. Um, if I could just interrupt you for one second, even that simple that, that the trick that she had developed for them, I, I was impressed at how. Uh, precisely, you were able to correlate certain types of magic tricks with certain types of disabilities. And yeah, I, I mean, you know, and I really used the medical professionals to, to make that happen. You know, I, I collected all the magic tricks with a group of, of terrific magicians, kind of knowing that you know, there's magic that uh, you need one hand for, there's magic you need two hands for. We found magic that you need no hands or no feet for. A quadriplegic can actually do a piece of mind reading kind of magic with mathem- to improve mathematical skills. Mm-hmm. We found magic that blind people can do. Imagine having a card selected and being found by somebody they can't see. You know what I'm saying? So it's pretty, it makes it even more amazing. It, it's blows I, I mean, I can't imagine that. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> we, we found this actual magic that you can do for each and every category. Now, for a blind person, um, that would help them with their socialization skills or their, uh, it would help them with their... Um, you know, uh, communication skills and mathematical skills. So each piece of magic has certain skills that you have to learn to do that, and magic is the motivation, motivational tool. It, it would seem to me that picking those, those tools, and granted, the, 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 the medical elements of how to match which exercise with what kind of disability, I'll, I'll talk to Julie Lejeune about who's coming on next. But I, I'm curious just from a, a pure magician's perspective, how, how did you actually get... Uh, uh, magic tricks that you could teach people and not violate the classic magician code of never, never telling how. We comb through all the books for simple magic that, uh, that you can get in a local library, for example. Hmm. You know, when I was a kid, I was inventing magic of my own, but to begin with, you know, I went to the local library. Remember libraries? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you actually go and get, take books out? Um, yeah, you go to the library and find magic books. There's magic books for Cub Scouts, there's magic books for, you know, and so I found magic with a group of magicians that really would not uh, be in a big professional show, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and it was tons of them, hundreds of them, you know, and we created a, a book of 24 tricks in the very beginning. Now we have a huge book uh, that uh, is, is, is for this thing, which, which you have a copy of. And, uh, you know, we combined the magic with all the therapeutic values. In other words, each magic trick, what it could actually, how it could benefit a patient, you know, uh, for uh, uh, gross motor activities, fine motor skills, uh, memory planning, sequencing, uh, coordination, socialization skills, and then found, put in the book kind of a grid where uh, what abilities you need, you know, you need one hand to make it work, you need two hands to make it work, you need just uh, what kind of movement you need, what kind of limitations there are. So, you know, it's for color recognition, all kinds of things. So it's, it's really, really cool. We're only just scratching the surface here. We've got a whole lot more to discuss after the break. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. All right, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the back seat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. 
It's The Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela Yee is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yimby's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. One of the things that David uh, was able to do was to team up with, with a, a wonderful physical therapist who, uh, who understood rehabilitation and understood children uh, who had uh, developmental challenges. And by working with her, craft the program, Project Magic, uh, which has been profoundly influential um, in, uh, in hospitals around the world. And, and I'm really curious about how this process sort of got started, how the team was created, and, and how it has allowed so many children to, to benefit. So we asked Julie DeGene, who is the director of Project Magic, and the organization that she developed with uh, David Copperfield, to, to join us today. And just give everyone a little bit of background on, on Julie. Uh, she's a trained occupational therapist and uh, is, or currently is the administrative director of Sturman Vale West, which is a psychiatric hospital in Topeka, Kansas. And since I'm Oz, this is a, a perfect person to talk to. I've never been to Topeka, but I've been to Kansas. Uh, she's presented over 100 workshops uh, on this material to folks all over the place. And uh, she's had a, a, a bunch of other ac- academic and administrative responsibilities all speak to her ability to get things done. Julie, thank you for joining us. So, Julie, just right off the bat, let me ask you, how how did you first meet David, and what got you the idea of doing Project Magic? I met David when I was working in a hospital in Inglewood, California, which is the Los Angeles area. I was a clinical occupational therapist at the time, and David actually came up with the idea of Project Magic, got to my hospital, because we were an outstanding physical rehabilitation facility, and ask us what we thought about the idea of using magic as part of our therapy. And it was really myself and another occupational therapist who embraced the idea and realized, hey, this is a great activity to use in our process of helping now, patients. What is it that made you say that, actually? Because I must say, when, when David first mentioned to me this Project Magic thing, I, I wasn't quite sure what he meant, but he had left a book for me that I started to leave through. And I must say, my kids took the book away from me. In fact, I couldn't even get it back for the show today uh, because they, they liked learning how to do these tricks. Some of them were making you know rubber bands jump from one finger to another, things that on the surface seem pretty cool. Um, and when you actually learn how to do them, they're even cooler because they're simple, they're doable, and it doesn't require a huge manual dexterity to get it done, which I guess makes it more accessible to these kids. That's right. We need magic to be simple for the activities that we're working on with people to improve their dexterity, their fine motor skill, strengthening upper extremity, improving language and communication. They're all things that um, the simple magic can do. We don't use what they call competitive magic, which is the big magic like David uses. We use simple magic, but it helps the the patients more motivated to use that. Um, I'm sure you're aware of traditional therapy. We do things like stack cones or um, work on turning objects, things that are are kind of mundane and not as exciting. But when one of the patients learns a magic trick, now they know how to do something that the able-bodied person can't do, and it makes it so much more special. I I think of all the insights I gained about Project Magic, that will be the one that 
would impress me and I would like to impress on, on our audience the most because it allows kids to surprise you. And it's fun when a child surprises an adult. It, it makes them feel better, builds self-esteem. It does make it more fun to learn how to do it. I agree. But it goes even beyond that. Uh, and I, I suspect that that's part of one of the reasons that kids resonate to it so much. Well, not just kids, adults too. I think one of our categories of patients who get a lot out of it are our older patients because it gives them something to connect back to their family and their grandchildren with. So it's, it's something that everybody can have fun with and feel better with. You know, after a stroke or a head injury or a devastating illness, people are scared of what to expect from their loved one and their disabilities. Now they can't move one arm or they can't speak well. And yet if that patient can show their family member a trick, and it makes everybody more at ease, have more fun, relax, and realize they can do something. So walk me through, Julie, the, the logistics of how you actually created Project Magic. And by the way, if people want to learn more about it, how do they, is there a website? How do they get the book? Um, people can contact me. I do have an email address that they can contact me, or I do have a phone number that they can contact me at. And we do um, provide the book and basic information to anybody who's interested in doing the program or starting their own program. Give us the number real quick. The telephone number is 785-270-4600. Perfect. Now, if if, uh, if folks like I, like and I am as well, are curious about how you actually start a program, what are the logistical barriers? So let's say there's a hospital near you or occupational therapy center near you um, that, that you think might benefit from this. How do you actually get it done? Usually what happens, um, and is that you can't, you're either involved with a magician, you are a magician, or you just like magic. You don't have to be a magician, but it's nice to have a magician who knows um, how to do a lot of the tricks. You can contact a local hospital, occupational therapy department. It could be physical therapy or speech pathology even. There's a lot of um, activity therapists in nursing homes and other types of places. So there's a lot of different types of healthcare professionals that you can contact and ask if you can volunteer your time teaching magic as part of their therapy program. And each facility has to figure out how to make it work in their own organization. Sometimes there are stroke groups or... um, um, arthritic groups that a person can go in and help teach simple magic to. There's one recommendation I'd make is have a healthcare professional working with you because you don't want to get um, involved in teaching a patient with limitations something that they can't do. And if you have the healthcare worker who understands what the limitations and abilities of the disabled person are, then you'll be able to be successful at teaching the trick. How many hospitals right now are involved with Project Magic? Well, it varies from time to time because it's a program that kind of comes and goes with the interest um, of the people involved. But I know that there are at least 100 hospitals around the world still currently doing the program. Around the world? Around the world. When we first started the program, of course, we were here in the United States, but I think in the last few years especially, most growth of the program has been in Europe and other places in the world. It would seem to me that a lot of the tricks that you that you have in the book are ones that an occupational therapist could teach without a magician's help. That's true. That's the beauty of the program is you don't have to. But you know what the magician adds that um, those of us who haven't um, been magicians don't know is how to add the showmanship, the performance, how to make a pattern to go along with the magic tricks. (laughs) So plus that makes it more exciting even for the patient to have somebody from outside the institution to come in and show attention and 
belief in that person and to help them develop. How'd you actually pick which tricks to use? I mean, there's so many that you could have uh, chosen. Now, the ones you picked seem to flow from really easy to sometimes a bit more challenging. David and I, um, when we started the program, had he came up with a few tricks, and then we just combed through magic books, lots and lots of magic books. We kind of gathered a group of magicians and occupational therapists from the Los Angeles area, and we sat down and spent hours just going through the books, magicians doing the tricks for the healthcare professionals, trying to decide which ones would be appropriate. So it's been um, a labor of love over the years to figure out which tricks really work with um, which patients. And if you looked at the book, you noticed what we did is we figured out what kind of goal you're working on. So whether you're working on coordination or upper extremity dexterity, we have a grid in the back of the book that shows you this trick is good for achieving this goal. We also have in the back of the book what abilities the patient has to have. Because, for example, a quadriplegic or a patient with no motion in their upper extremities, you wouldn't want them to try a trick that requires that kind of dexterity. So we point out if all they need is their mind, because we have mind magic where they can divine an object um, or a color or a mathematical sequence, um, then even a patient with no motion can work on that and at the same time be working on their communication or their cognitive skills. Uh, we're talking to Julia Dejean. She's the director of Project Magic, the organization that she developed with uh, uh, magician David Copperfield, uh, which is used as a therapeutic modality in rehab centers and uh, around around the world. Uh, Julie, help me understand what research has been done showing that magic makes a difference. Um, we've had several therapists who were part of their master's programs, um, primarily in Europe. Again, most of our development recently has been in Europe, although there are some local programs that have done some research research too. And most of the research that's been done has actually used um, both a control group and a group that has been using specific magic. And in those cases, the therapist, the researchers picked a specific um, diagnosis, used um, specific tricks, and then proved um, that they were able to improve the patient's skill by using those specific tricks. It's, it's, it's some of it's very detailed. It's down to the use of a certain muscle group and um, strengthening that muscle group or improving the action of that muscle group. So it's, it's, some of it's pretty detailed. Uh, I was l- looking at that matrix, and it was very impressive how much thought had gone into picking exercises that, that anybody with any limitation can do. But I also think as a parent that uh, giving this to kids um, will all- allow them to also improve their manual dexterity, even if they don't have any objective limitations. I don't know if you find that happening as well. I mean, I can't think of a better gift to give uh, an eight-year-old. That's true. You know, the other thing is, um, when I started the program, I was working in physical rehabilitation. Now I work in psychiatry, and I still do an occasional group on our adolescent unit with the kids there. Now, these kids, most of them don't have any physical limitations, but I honestly believe I've had more fun and seen more success in my psychiatric experience with these kids. They need so much in the um, development of self-esteem and feeling confident and being able to talk and present to other people, that's a whole nother side of the magic beyond the physical side that I've really discovered in the most recent years is wonderful. And do you have a program in mind for that, or do you think you should just... I, mean, I would gather you could probably modify the current program to suit adolescents. We, we do. The 
same tricks in the book work well for the kids. Now, I happen to have um, a magician in the United States who is also a psychologist who he came up with his own book of tricks for the psychiatric type of patient, and he links it back with a counseling focus. He kind of took what Dave and I had done more in the physical world and extended it into the psychiatric world. So there are more resources out there now as the program has grown from people who have applied it to other areas. You know, it's, it struck me because we have a program that, uh, that we do in schools called Health Corps, and a lot of the program is about mental resilience. And this is probably one of the smartest ways you could do it. David showed me a video of, uh, of the program, and you can see these kids um, uh, just shine brightly when they actually can trick you. Uh, they're not even tricking you, frankly. They're showing you their wares. And the showmanship that you mentioned earlier becomes part of the process. And, and you just see the smile in their eyes as they you know, flick the band from one finger to another or do whatever trick they're going to do. Uh, and, it, you know, of course, the entire place lights up. But I can see that being useful for any parent out there who's, uh, who's trying to get their kids to just explore a little different part of their personality and of their mind. Well, we all want to please other people, and magic is a huge um, people pleaser because when you do it for someone who doesn't know how you do it, you made um, the sense of surprise, the sense of pride. Those are all very positive things for a child to learn. Do you ever go to magic shows yourself? Um, oh, yes. <laughs> you do magic? No, um, only our project magic. I, I've decided to keep myself in <laughs> in that area. I'm not... Uh, looking to do it professionally. Although I have learned a few things from David over the years, but of course, I'll always keep it quiet. Julie, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, uh, Julie DeGene, Director of Project Magic. Uh, it's a wonderful group that's in uh, over 100 hospitals worldwide um, and has uh, created a, a movement that has benefited uh, lots of folks. And I think it has an opportunity to help uh, people without any disabilities at all. And uh, I applaud you for all your work. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. We'll be right back with more David. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. When, when I first got the book, the first person to actually look at it was my eight-year-old. And I could never actually pry it away from him again. It's still in his room. And I was struck by the fact that uh, these tools that, that are in there, which admittedly could be used by, by uh, adults and children who are disabled, could be used at any generation at any time. Uh, I'm wondering if you've used the book uh, just as a general educational tool for kids, because not all the disabilities are physical. They're often there, as you mentioned earlier, emotional challenges as you grow up that uh, can be overcome if you've got a, something that makes you special, like being able to get people to see magic. Yes, I mean, we have, you know... You know, this is used in not just medical facilities. It's used in in, in, in drug rehab. It's been used in uh, uh, you know different clubs that exist as far as a activity group. Uh, you know, there was a story we have where it did fall into the medical category. There was a mom who uh, had another kid that had a disability and. The kid didn't want to learn how to get dressed again. She couldn't motivate the kid <laughs> to get dressed. 
um, and no motivation, but she heard about Project Magic and, and, and taught the kid uh, this rope trick. Um, and he, they very happily learned the rope trick, and that took certain uh, movements to accomplish, you know, vanishing a knot in a piece of rope. And uh, after the kid accomplished that, the kid started to learn to get dressed again, tie his shoes and so forth. So he didn't become a magician, and that's not our goal, to create magicians. Frankly, I don't need the competition. <laughs> but uh, he, he got used as a transitional tool uh, to learn uh, a, a social activity that he needed to do, which is to get dressed. It was maybe learning one thing, which created the kind of the link or the boundary, the uh, the motivation and the uh, the knowledge that you're able to do certain movements. And he was, you know, suddenly learning skills that he needed in his daily life. So a lot of times, Project Magic, and most of the time, Project Magic is used as kind of a fun activity to kind of bridge the gap. And, uh, yeah, that's how we do it. Yeah, it makes so much sense, David. And, you know, you've done tours all over the world, uh, won numerous Emmy Awards, uh, you know, had, you know, had uh, best-selling projects in every walk of life, whether it's theater, television, and the like. Um, but at the same time, I've been impressed that you're a student of magic and you've taken a lot of time to preserve the history of magic. Yeah. Um, and I, I think for a lot of the public, uh, you know, our view of magical history is Houdini. Uh, and who, who are the, the big magical inspirations for you? And, t- and tell me a little bit about uh, the, the museum that you've been able to, uh, to build up of uh, famous magical memorabilia. Well, before I do, you know, um, my idols when I was a kid magician weren't other magicians, believe it or not. You know, now I have a great respect for them. But, but uh, at the time when I was a kid, my idols were uh, movie directors and film, film directors and movie stars and people like that. You know, I, I, my magic was really patterned after an, a kind of an idolization of Frank Capra, because I tell a lot of stories. My magic is story-based and it's very emotional. Uh, and I use magic to, um, you know tell stories and to uh, create emotions with the magic. So it's, it was really Orson Welles and Frank Capra and uh, Victor Fleming and, you know, great, great directors. And t- today the Spielbergs, you know, big fan of people that do really good work uh, as storytellers. Uh, dancers like Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly were very inspiration. Frank Sinatra, you know, people that took, took their art form and, 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 and created emotional emotional things. That's who I really looked up to. And that's why my magic looks very, very different than my predecessors. Now, a lot of people do the kind of style of magic I do. But at the time when I was starting out, nobody was really sharing emotional uh, life lessons or stories or feelings through magic. Magic was always, you know, the guy in the Ed Sullivan show, you know, producing the doves, which is pretty cool. But uh, it wasn't, didn't have the same emotional effect to me as when I'd go into a James Bond movie and I'd walk out being James Bond as a kid, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And you, you really, I wanted to transform people with something that I was good at. Magic was the thing that uh, really, uh, for some reason, I was good at. And, uh, you know, later on, uh, I had the opportunity to acquire a kind of a museum of magic, a collection, and I did. And, well, I fell in love with these guys. You know, these, these are amazing characters. Their lives uh, uh, really parallel all of our lives, you know, the Thurstons and the Blackstones and the Houdinis and the Kellers. Uh, and um, after getting this stuff and creating this museum, which is a private museum, it's not for the public, it has, you know, all the secrets of magic and it's an amazing thing. This place really taught me that I should have maybe paid attention to those guys too, not just, you know, movie guys, um, even though they really provided me the opportunity to, to, uh, to have this museum. But um, yeah, these guys in the past just 
you know, going moving into that category, were really amazing. You know, they had the same jealousies, the same, um, you know, uh, passions. Uh, I have all the letters of, of Houdini, his entire act, his entire show is in my museum. If he were to come back from the dead and to stand in the middle of the museum, he'd see his entire show, all the props, all his scrapbooks, uh, all of the escapes that he was famous for, all his keys. His secrets are right there, in addition to Keller and Thurston and, uh, you know, um, so for example, amazing history. Who, who had Houdini's secrets? I mean, if you wanted to learn how he did his great escapes, did someone actually preserve that? Was that his? his did his widow have that material? There were there were a bunch of museums. Those went in Niagara Falls, which I have most of the good stuff from that. that oh, I, I went there. Yeah, you yep, got that stuff. Yeah, oh. I have that stuff. Oh, know. it was the best. <laughs> yeah, I, and and Houdini when he was alive. Uh, befriended a guy named John Mulholland. John uh-huh. Mulholland was a magic collector, a historian, and a, a writer of a magazine. So when Houdini was going to give his stuff away, he gave half of it to the Library of Congress. Half of his library is in the Library of Congress. Mm-hmm. Uh, so your tax dollars for preserving half of Houdini's library. Yeah. The other half he gave to this John Mulholland guy, who was a very a scholar of magic, collector of the history of magic um, in the 20s. So half of his um, uh, library is the Library of Congress, and half of it is in my museum. So I have half of Houdini's library. Um, Mulholland wrote a magazine for magicians, so all of the magicians gave his, uh, his their historical stuff to him. So I have files and files of all these infamous and famous magicians, uh, all their props uh, I, I bought and acquired at auction other museum pieces, this Niagara Falls stuff, the Houdini Museum that was there. So I have a lot of the actual hardware of Houdini stuff, his water torture cell, the milk can escape, his straight jackets, his lock picks. Uh, oh my goodness. His scrapbook's amazing. Well, I, I, so, I, I saw part of this uh, with Lisa when we went to Niagara Falls when I was, I must have still been a resident. This is many, many right. years ago. But I, I remember, and you actually recounted this as well, a, a lot of the, if a hundred years ago you're walking into an arcade, there'd be you know lung, iron lung machines, there'd be all kinds of things that sort of examine the body. Right. They weren't pinball machines. You, I think you collected some of those too, haven't you? That's a separate place. In, in New York, I have a, another museum. I have a whole floor of arcade machines. It's another passion, very separate from magic. It's magic in its own way, but you know, it's, it's the, the penny arcade. If, you know, the best way to explain it is um, the movie Big. Remember the fortune teller in the movie Big? It really relates to that. It was shot in Cliffside Park, New Jersey. Exactly. That's where we live. Coney Island. In Coney (laughs) Island, yeah. You put a penny in and you would uh, have your fortune told. But from a medical standpoint, there was... Dr. Vibrator, the vibration machine for medical use, that was, a, it was so popular in the turn of the century, vibration, uh, as a form of therapy, and it became so kind of famous uh, amongst people, the, the therapeutic value of vibration. There was actually an arcade machine where you'd put a penny in, and you'd have a vibration treatment. And it was a guy, it's a big cast iron guy that vibrates you. <laughs> and it's sitting, in my, it's sitting in my house. And it was the very rarest of these kind of machines, which are lung testers where you'd have to test your power of your lungs. You'd have a competition with, the, with your, your, your friends there to show what, who could, who could uh, blow into this tube the best and then have hats go off of a guy or you blow up a, 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 a hot air balloon in this little machine that you put a penny in, you test the strength of your lungs. And they're the rarest of the machines because, as you know, you know tuberculosis existed without a cure or any treatment back then. So they outlawed these machines because these machines were 
killing people. People were sharing the same, the same uh, tube, the same machine, and they were passing a disease which yeah. didn't really have a treatment <laughs> at the see. time. So the darker side. Things, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so to find one of those machines is very, very rare. It's cool. Uh, let me talk a little bit uh, for the last few minutes about magic itself. And I've always, uh, like most normal human beings who don't know why the tricks work, have been fascinated by uh, the, the, the tricks that are used. But at the same time, you know, deep down inside, it actually sort of stretches your mind, which I think is a pretty healthy thing. If you, if you sort of give us your perspective of someone who's been a leader in this field, I mean, you're doing 500 performances a year. Uh, you know, you're, I don't think you're showing any signs of slowing down. What is it about magic that jazzes you up even today? And what is, what is it about its, its offering to the public that makes it so compelling? I just love watching people. You know, I love people, watching people go, wow, you know, the, the oh my God factor to kind of, to make them forget about all the, bad things that are happening in their lives. It really, really, as corny as that might sound, that really is inspiring. It's in the same way that Oprah feels when she helps people or she watches people's face. I, I know that's going to motivate her to make you know, people happy like that, to kind of enrich you know, their, their life in the way she does it, the way you do it as a medical professional. You watch people that you're actually helping, directly helping as a medical mm-hmm. genius that you are. You know, for me, I'm an entertainer, you know, so the best I can do is to kind of make people smile and kind of make them forget what's going on. And whether you're a singer or a comedian, just to watch people's faces and know that they're happy for that hour and a half or two hours that they're at a show, you know, uh, is really motivating. You know, you talked about Musha Key, Musha Kay, you know, and the islands of Copperfield Bay, the place that you took your vacation. You know, we just, I'm in Vegas now, so every day we're working on the treasure hunt that you took. And that, now we have, let me tell you, we have pirates. We're designing these pirates that levitate on the beach as part of the treasure hunt. We have a, a guillotine as part of the treasure hunt. So when you get to a clue, one of the people gets their head cut off and maybe even put back on. If, you, if, 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 if I have a problem, I'll call you. You can fix that guy up. Um, but, uh, you know, all of these different magic effects uh, have really enhanced the treasure hunt that you took, you, you know, you, it's totally different than what you saw. And he, for the people who are listening, this is a, Dr. Ross is really, really smart. You know, he was not just in medicine. He was, at the end, he, he, were, he was compelled to, to say, here's how I think you should change it. Here's what happened. You know, so he's very collaborative. So thank you for your suggestions, by the way. Oh, it was a minor contribution. It's a brilliant. The kids all want a plank. Yes. They want someone to have to walk the plank. They want you death, glory, and blood. I think you walk the plank and levitate off of it. How about that? <laughs> that would work. Let me ask you one last question. Uh, I, I'm sure that uh, when you're a young man deciding to be a magician, there, there might have been some discussion within the family about whether it was the right career for you. Yeah. Did you did, did you ever get pushback from your relatives saying, David, you know, you should go to medical school? <laughs> they wanted me to be you. Please. He's very squeamish. He doesn't like yeah, blood, no. remember? Jewish mom, you know, Jewish mom said, hey, David, doctor, lawyer, you know, like that. Uh, and and really, really, and it really helped because, you know, I, I can't do it. You know, I'm like the project. My mother wanted me to become a doctor. Project magic is the closest I'll ever get to that. So I'm making her happy. Um, but I think... Uh, since they were kind of nervous about me doing magic, nobody, you know, it was harder. It's a really hard road to take, especially, you know, when, when I was starting it. Uh, it really motivated me to make sure my bases were covered and I had a way, way of making a business plan, be able to eat off of making stuff disappear. So it made me try harder for sure. Last question. You're in a superb physical shape. How do you do it? 
you got a busy program. You're, you know, if I do the math right, more than once a day, you're in front of an audience. Uh, how do you stay physically fit? Probably, you know, I, I've never smoked a cigarette. I don't drink very much. I don't drink practically at all, just a little tiny bit, you know. I don't even drink coffee. Isn't that weird? No, I think it's great. I know. I'm sorry, Starbucks, but I don't. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, the only bad part is stress. You know, the stress in show business is stress always. Mm-hmm. But uh, aside from that, you know, they say if you don't use it, you lose it. Well, how do you talk? You That's say? right. That's exactly right. Um, so I think doing 500 shows a year, and the show is very physical. You know, there's a lot of um, jumping around and moving around. So you have, you're kind of forced to be active. You know, the, it's, I have no choice, and I have to use my brain every day. And, and you know, when you're motivated to do stuff and you love what you do, you know, I'm one of those lucky people that really love what they do. David, it's been a great, great blessing to have you on the program. I appreciate it much. I applaud you for all you've done with Project Magic uh, and uh, the wonderful collaborative uh, endeavor you've created with Julie Jean. Thank you for doing it. Thank you. You're the best. solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council.